Hello, Napoleonic Quarterly listeners. This is Alex Stevenson in a particularly chirpy mood this morning uh, as I bring you the final episode in this batch uh, for the second series of the podcast. And uh, this final episode is with one of the really leading historians of the period, Adam Zamoyski. I'm really excited to bring this one to you. It's been a while since we actually recorded it. I think it was one of the first that I did... um, Um, just over a year ago in the summer of or even spring of 2020 um, a very different time of course but it was great to talk to Adam we arranged to talk he was um, uh, in the wilds of Poland the wastes of Poland as he put it but we were able to um, connect together over the internet and talk about um, his work and views on the period now of course in terms of his work he's written an awful lot of books over his career on all sorts of things including the forgotten few on the polish airmen of world war ii and he's written about warsaw 1920 as well he's written about musicians like chopin and um, paderewski who also turned into a politician Um, he's written about poland you've got the last king of poland which is uh, thoroughly recommended for those who've been following poland in the napoleonic quarterly so far but he's also written the polish way uh, and um, just a general history of poland called poland uh, and and then we come to the thematic books about the revolutionary period, uh, Holy Madness on romantics and revolutionaries through really the century starting from 1770-ish. Um, and, uh, of course, Phantom Terror, one of his more recent books um, about, you know, what's going on in the heads of these revolutionaries. And then we come to his books about the 1792 to 1815 period um, which are the ones I've read um, more than more than perhaps the others. Rights of Peace on Congress of Vienna, that's brilliant, all about the dancing and um, everything <laughs> to do with that, as well as the politics all mixed up together. Um, Moscow 1812 is a much more harrowing read, everything you'd expect, and one to read with a warm woolly jumper where preferable to keep out the chills um and more most recently of course he's he's published a biography of napoleon he's written uh, napoleon the man behind the myth which we do talk about in this episode so roughly speaking the first half of this interview is on poland and then we get on to napoleon and the question of whether or not um he's someone to be pitied or to be empathized with and i think um that is such an interesting conversation. So I really, really enjoyed this one. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, Adam, thank you very much um, for uh, talking to me. I'm a great fan of your books, I have to admit. I really enjoyed your book on 1812, although obviously very grim in places. What a difference to... Um, uh, rights of peace, which was you know all those florid bulls, and then the magnificent diplomating uh, going on around them, and of course your new your new book, uh, your biography of Napoleon, which attempts to present him as a human uh, figure who um, has been the subject of the most extraordinary myths um, uh, since his uh, death. Uh, and I think you've tried to cut through that and done so extraordinarily well. So I have to admit, it, it, I, sorry for such a fawning introduction, um, but, uh, but I am a big fan. I can't say I mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I wanted to start where you 
finish, I suppose, really, which is which is about Poland and the centrality of Poland um, to the whole of this period, all the way through from the Second Partition uh, at, at the start of the French Revolutionary Wars uh, to what it could have ended up triggering a further conflict, it looked like, at Vienna if they hadn't sorted themselves out, which they just about managed to do. So, obviously, speaking to you, you're in Poland now um, as, as I speak to you, but what, what's your sense of, um, to start off with, Poland's place in um, the history of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars? Uh, well, I think it is central. Um I've uh, been rather reticent uh, about making this point uh, because, um, well, with my Polish origins, um, I've always felt it rather impolite to blow one's own trumpet or to talk too much about Poland. Uh, you know, there's that joke that if, um, three people of different nationalities are asked to write an essay on the elephant and the Frenchman writes... Uh, an essay on the sex life of the elephant. The German uh, produces a treatise on every aspect, physiological and other, of the elephant. <laughs> and the Pole produces um, an essay on the elephant and the Polish question. So <laughs> one is always uh, very, um, <laughs> very aware as a Pole that, that, um, that one's um, bringing up something which is quite alien to most people. Um, it, was, it, it all started really with the first partition where um, Frederick II, Frederick the Great, uh, sets the tone by right, I forget to which of the philosophers he writes, saying, uh, well, I have taken some territory, but I went through it and it's absolutely appalling. It's just sand, fir trees and <laughs> Jews. And um, really, it's, you know, almost the white man's burden. And right. this... Um, then very soon turned into an actual policy, particularly by the Prussians, um, that taken up by everybody else. In, uh, in 1794, the, um, the Prussians seized one of the most important things. They seized the Polish crown jewels and later melted them down. Um, Gosh, right. And the whole idea was to obliterate the fact of there ever having been a proper Polish state. And indeed, in, in, the, um, in the text of the, the silent treaty of the, the secret treaty of the third partition, the three powers actually promised never to use the word Poland again in official correspondence. Right, right. Uh, so there was this uh, um, tendency which went right through the 19th century and on to uh, smother anything about that, that testified to uh, Poland's past glories, if there had been any. Uh, the Russians, for instance, kept all the documents they could find uh, well under wraps and still don't, uh, still deny access to uh, documents of the Western areas of Russia that had been bits of Poland. Um, right. And Russian and particularly German and Austrian historians throughout the 19th century endlessly belittled Poland and, and said it was just a sort of irrelevance. Uh, and this carried on and, and it, got, it got under the skin of Western scholarship 
And it's, it's only since the sort of 1960s that people have felt they could actually bring up the subject of Poland um, without being thought of as, as dealing in something rather abstruse. Um, yes. and, and I've always been very aware of the fact that, you know, one is, one is talking about something which seems very distant to people. Uh, so, but the more one um, actually studies the period itself, uh, the more aware one becomes of the fact that uh, beginning with the first partition of Poland, and this is something that Talleyrand, the great French um, diplomat and statesman, yes. um, pointed out very strongly and came back to many times, that with the first partition of Poland, um, an enormous imbalance opened up in Central Europe and really uh, totally um, changed not just the balance of power, but the whole landscape um, and the possibility of, um, of finding a, uh, a satisfactory solution for the area. Um, and this has nothing to do with the merits of the Poles or otherwise. And this is something that, that one has to... So it's just geopolitics, basically. You've got the yes. at the end of the, the long 18th century, a period when, um, uh, you know, you would have a war and then a treaty in, in which both the various parties would, would carve up bits of territory to, to compensate each other in a nice balanced way. And then all of a sudden, in the first partition and then I suppose the second partition as well, the same principle is being applied, but on a much larger, larger scale in which a very significant kingdom which has been around for a long time and been very significant, is really being chopped up and, and that really fundamentally changes things. Yes, and it's, again, I, I, I want to come back to, to, to this thing that it's got absolutely nothing to do whether you like the Poles or don't like the Poles. In fact, I've been told to my face um, more than once um, by perfectly intelligent people, oh, but you can't write um, European history because you're a Pole, you're biased. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Really? Um, and, uh, um, wow. Th th and the point is that it's got nothing to do with, with whether you, as I say, whether you think the Poles were, frankly, I think they, you know, they, well, we, they brought it upon themselves, ourselves, um, by making a frightful mess of our, of our state, or, or at least by pursuing a completely different um, image of a state, um, which in itself is quite an interesting uh, one. Do you mean the ele the elective monarchy, the nature of the constitutional yes, settlement in, think, in the Kingdom of Poland? Yeah, the whole, you know, really it, the whole thing goes back to the 16th century where, where everywhere in Europe, uh, monarchies begin to uh, centralise the state and create the power of the state and uh, this, you know, it's the Tudors in England. These are new dynasties, the Tudors in in in, in England, um, the Bourbons in France, uh, and then throughout the 17th century, everywhere throughout Europe, there's a closing down of local assemblies, local representative um, parliaments, of which there are many all over Europe, uh, and they're yes. they're hamstrung, they're closed down, they're abolished, and every monarchy creates a pyramid of power and this is very obvious in somewhere like France which when Louis XIV came to the throne France was a mess very much 
very disparate. Uh, and, and he spends his whole life turning it into one mega state. And whereas in Poland, uh, and the Vasas tried to do that in Poland, but they met with tremendous resistance because Poland was a very disparate, sprawling state. And there was, who were the Vasas? Um, the, the Swedish dynasty who came, the Vasa kings, three of them, reigned right. for almost 100 years between um, right. the, the 1590s and the 1690s. 80s and um, 1670s, and they um, and, and the Poles elected to hang on to an idea of a hugely decentralized and localized state with um, very small government, no central army, and um, and of course this made it very weak in the face of the great um, power. So. Yes, they weren't setting themselves up well for the 18th century. Exactly. Um, right. Anyway, getting back to the partitions, what happened was that a very large area of land uh, with a very large population um, was suddenly removed from the chessboard to the enormous advantage, to the absolutely extraordinary advantage of, first of all, Prussia, yeah. which... Um, troubled in size, and from being a, a minor, though very well-run country, but you know, before the first partition, um, I forget again who said it, but somebody said Prussia is an army with a state, um, rather than a state with an army, and Prussia suddenly became a first-rank player. Russia came right into Europe. Austria gained very little. Uh, possibly even weakened herself, and certainly lost out because suddenly, rather than being the dominant influence in Central Europe over the German lands, uh, which was by its very nature a fairly beneficent influence because the Austrians had nothing to gain. They couldn't. They yes. had nothing to yes. gain by trying to become emperors of Germany. In fact, it would have undermined their position elsewhere. Um, whereas Prussia did have an interest in gaining control of Germany, as did Russia. And without Poland there, uh, there was suddenly a struggle on. And this connects very neatly with what um, really lay at the bottom of the Napoleonic Wars. And it's that connection which is so interesting, actually, although it feels like the way you're describing it, it was rather game over by the time that Napoleon became a prominent. But I suppose Napoleon did his best. He, he, I, I sort of feel like Napoleon used the Poles. Um, uh, th there's a common thread between his approach to the Poles and those uh, of um, his approach to the Egyptians when he arrived in Cairo in declared himself to be a muscle man and um that you know he was he was entirely friendly with them he was essentially using them for his short-term political ends yes i mean the, the problem with napoleon is that he was the most terrific tactician but he was no strategist and he did not have at any stage in his career a long-term policy. He was always changing policy and taking advantage of situations that arose. How did Pol how did Polish people at the time manage him? I mean, obviously, we all know about um, Marie Walewska, 
um, and um, and that side of things. Um, and we think about the, uh, the the great. I suppose he, in a sense, he just carried on. He did. He you know, Prussia had offered Poland um, the hand of friendship and and security guarantees uh, in in seventeen ninety two, and then didn't follow through in terms of the promises that he kept dangling in front of um, uh, Polish nobles at the time. Yes, I mean he never actually. <clears throat> Um, made made any concrete promises, unlike Prussia, which was actually bound by treaty and and simply right. um, reneged on that. Um, no, I think the, the the problem with with um, with uh, what lay at the bottom of the Napoleonic Wars, well, first of all, the, the revolutionary wars was that um, because they had um, the uh, many of the states of, of Central Europe, particularly Austria. Russia and Prussia uh, were terrified of the French Revolution and felt it should be uh, quashed. Um, they they uh, provoked um, war with revolutionary France, and the, the the original the first coalition was about quashing the revolution. Uh, but France very quickly r- responded by saying, well, hang on, you know, the only way we can defeat this is by um, calling for the liberation of peoples. Um, and that was the only philosophy of revolutionary France, plus, of course, the plunder they got making war pay for itself and the peace of France. Yes, so a far cry from the Federes of 1792, but in terms of exporting the revolution from 95 onwards, it's, it's almost as if that, that, that was the bit of the rhetoric that survived through into the, into the Napoleonic 19th century wars. Yes, and um, what Napoleon even... As as um, as a general before he came to power, uh, began to see quite clearly was that well, to begin with he was very fixated on Italy because he 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 had f- very firmly in his mind the centuries of struggle uh, between um, the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the Austrian, um, uh, the House of Austria, and France. Yes. Which also drew in Spain on on the Austrian side over north of Italy because the north of Italy was rich and it was strategically important, and uh, they'd been fighting over it for for two hundred years, and Napoleon in his first Italian campaign where he was really just told to go and hold the front and act as a distraction, decided no, Italy is the place where we defeat Austria and secure France's existence, and he went on right through Italy to threaten Vienna. Uh, But what he then quite clearly realized was that there was this great power vacuum in Central Europe because once the Austrians had stopped being powerful and with Russia uh, fishing in muddy waters in Central Europe. And let's not forget that there were Russian armies in the 1790s operating in, in, in Italy. And so, oh, yeah, Suvorov, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> that's quite a long way away. Indeed, you know, <laughs> yes. it, the, the opening lines of, of, um, of war and peace, um, Tolstoy's war and peace, actually point this out. Somebody says, oh, you know, how's it going down in Luka or wherever it is? Um, hmm. so, and, and, and this is something that uh, he began to... Uh, try and construct a 
a sort of French version of the Holy Roman Empire, rather than Austria dominating right. the former German lands of the Holy Roman Empire. Through the Confederation of the Rhine, he thought, well, this will be a French Holy Roman Empire, and um, which was a perfectly sensible uh, solution and would have been quite beneficial uh, to most of the German lands um, had it not been for the fact that he completely subjected it to French interests and impoverished it as a result. Yes, Metternich um, at the time was um, aghast at um, what what they were up to in terms of just lacking all the subtleties, let's say, of, of normal statesmanship. Yes, and uh, the, the, the great um, tragedy in a way, and Napoleon's greatest mistake, it's the moment where, where he really, everything starts going wrong, is at Tilsit, when after having beaten Austria, knocked Prussia into a cocked hat and completely undermined the prestige of the Russian monarchy, um, which many felt should be abolished and you know, put back into a sort of, uh, into an electorate. Um, and having then drubbed the Russian armies, rather than following Talleyrand's advice, which was to turn Austria into France's strategic ally and yes. have the two of them, as it were, controlling Central Europe, either abolish Prussia altogether or return it to, to the size it was at the beginning of the 18th century, or before mm. the partitions of Poland anyway. Um, and that way, and, and by recreating some kind of a kingdom of Poland, um, push Russia out of the Central European affairs, and that way uh, cut it off from Germany. Uh, and had he adhered to that plan, uh, that would have actually... Uh, given him uh, really peace on the whole of France's eastern frontier. Instead of which, he got seduced by the idea of a grand no. alliance with Russia and an alliance which he thought he could control. And it was an alliance which could give him absolutely nothing, although he dreamed that it would help him bring Britain to its knees. Um, and yes, that was sort of where it all went. I mean, the, the seeds of eighteen twelve in in the yes in, in Tilsit. So this is the question to ask you then about about Napoleon. Um, following, you, you know, you've you've written your recent biography. There's there's an incredibly entertaining podcast available online of of you um, and Andrew Roberts having a <laughs> tremendous ding dong chaired by Jeremy Paxman, which if anyone hasn't heard, is very very entertaining, and very funny. Um, in which in which you both, I might suggest, adopt fairly. I mean, you're being very theatrical, aren't you? I mean, you, you, you're you're putting on a show. He's arguing the case for Napoleon the Great, and and you're um, you're doing the exact opposite. I wondered that that was written, I think, or that was recorded before you had written your biography. Yes, <laughs> in which you say at the end, it, you know, slightly slightly more nuanced picture. But I wond I wondered whether your biography had changed your view of Napoleon in any way. Um, not much. I mean, certainly it, it, it enlightened a great deal. Yes, it did. It, it, well, it explained a lot, put it in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, just to go back to that, to that podcast, um, I mean, it's Andrew rang me up one day and said, look, I'm trying to promote <laughs> my book on 
and I'm trying to get <laughs> oh, yeah. Intelligence Squared to do something, but they won't do an, they won't do a straight lecture. They say they need a debate. Would you debate with me? And I said, well, fine, as long as, you know, I can't stand these debates that Intelligence Squared holds, where in the end, everybody ends up agreeing with each other. Um, <laughs> yes, because everybody's very good. impolite. So I said, as long as we can have a hell of a ding dong and say um, <laughs> very rude things to each other and then have dinner afterwards, which is exactly what happened. That's very civilized. It is worth a listen. Um, yeah. So the point about Napoleon and the point about actually every single figure in history, and this is why I find most historians at some stage annoy me because people start treating historical figures as though they were somehow of a different category of humanity than the rest of us. And the fact is that you, know, you and I pick our noses, we burp, we mm. fart, we make mistakes, we make asses of ourselves, we frequently... Mm. Um, make the most idiotic mistakes. Um, we then try and cover our tracks by telling fibs. And fundamentally, most of us, if you were to take a cold look, are pretty ridiculous creatures. I mean, if anybody of us, mm. if, if you're an honest person, you'll take one look at yourself and say, you know, you're a bit of a blundering idiot, really, if you <laughs> take a really cold look at, at, at yourself. Um, yes. And people tend to suspend this when they start talking about great historical figures. And in particular, Napoleon is a really good case in point where people either do sort of think he was some kind of superhuman um, hero or else they think he was the most dreadful ogre and a monster and so on, um, and neither of which is remotely supported by any historical evidence at all. He was just a bloke. I mean, he was an ordinary bloke. Yeah, he was intelligent. He was um, clever rather than wise. He was, um, uh, you know, not likable because he was very, very chippy. Uh, he had many of the attributes of, of, of a psychopath. Um, in his lack of empathy, his um, insecurities, um, and so on. And, you know, I, I felt very sorry for him along because you could see the poor wretch. Um, actually, you know, the, after Tilsit, the, the, the fairy tale turns into the sorcerer's apprentice from yes. being, you know, the rise and rise of, of um, this rags to riches. Uh, fellow, everything starts going monstrously wrong and becomes more and more ridiculous. And people, even his, you know, Metternich is desperately trying to save him. He, he wants mm. to keep Napoleon on the throne of France and he wants a strong France. And Napoleon just won't go along with it because of his chippiness, his complexes, um, his terrible fears that the French won't love him enough unless he produces another hmm. resounding victory. Whereas, in fact, we know that the French were just fed up with the whole thing and just wanted peace and quiet and um, did quite like it. Do you think that was what drove his, um, you know, constant push for the, ne the next battle, that, that, that it was a sense of political insecurity? 
Yes, absolutely. And he says so. He keeps saying, he, he says it on various occasions to various people. He says, you know, your, your hereditary kings can get beaten to pulp and still come back to their capitals and be greeted as heroes. Um, whereas I'm just a parvenu upstart general. And hmm. unless I produce glory, <laughs> nobody will um, take me seriously. Uh, which was silly. What, what about um, after his initial victories in Italy in 1796, when he's sort of he's in Milan and he is for the first time um, he seems to be undergoing a transformation. I the whole thing is massively going to his head, um, and it, 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 that feels like a transformative moment when something clicks in his brain and he starts to see himself as a as something that is not everyday. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, two things. One thing clicks, dawns on him. Well, it doesn't dawn on him. It gradually uh, becomes confirmed is the conviction that most of those clever people running the French state are a bunch of, to put it politely, tossers. Um, right. And that they'll never run a country properly. And he was... Um, a child of the Enlightenment who believed in, you know, the, 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 the Enlightenment version of progress in the ordered state, you know, which was what theoretically the enlightened despots of the 18th century believed in. And he thinks, you know, everything should be well-ordered and sensible, and he hated things just malfunctioning. And because right. of his character, he was also a tremendous control freak, and he micromanaged everything. And so he, he, he looked at the way most of these countries were run, and particularly France, and he thought, this is absolutely appalling. I mean, anybody could do better than this, and I can certainly <laughs> do a lot better than this. So that's one thing he becomes absolutely firmly convinced of. Uh, second thing he becomes convinced of is that, you know, he's actually proved in the field that he can um, achieve things and that people will work for him and that people can see they, that they need leadership and that he can provide that leadership. Yes. And then there's a third element which comes in, and it's, and it's not just him. It's his whole generation brought up on... Plutarch's Lives of the Heroes of Antiquity, brought up on the new ideas about uh, self-fulfillment being a kind of um, surrogate religion, a surrogate sainthood in the new religion of humanity and so on, um, yes. that they all do begin to levitate. And, and we're reading... And the, the, not just the speeches, but the the letters and the memoirs and the and the the utterings of of, of people, uh, they they did begin to think that that they could fly. And now that is a really interesting suggestion, because one of the themes I think that's coming through is that there are people throughout this this period on all sides who have what seems to be, by modern standards, an extraordinary sense of agency. They think they can go off yes, and do absolutely. absolutely bonkers things. Yes, and Alexander I, for instance, thinks he's going to save the world. You know, that <laughs> yes. he's God's tool to yes. save the world. So he's no less crazy. Um, and a lot of these, particularly when they're young, 
the future marshals and the soldiers, uh, they they write and say things which, you know, the mind boggles. And there have been some very interesting books on these, on this this whole culture of emulation and um, of of the ancients um, and this cult of of achieving immortality by by sheer the power of will and and self sacrifice and crikey there there and so uh, presu- presumably then you have the, some people driven by that at the Napoleonic court or or on, you know on on campaign and then maybe others like Jacques Murat who are just you know dandies and enjoying the court and the pomp and circumstance that would come at any time when when people get a bit carried away like that yes i mean he i mean at at the beginning they all um do believe in this extraordinary cult um you know it's um in murat's case it's it's a, a light version because he was a um it's a complete idiot really but um <laughs> And, and and gradually they lose it by by really um, still Austerlitz and Jena Auerstadt are the high points. The Polish and Russian campaigns um, ending in Austerlitz already uh, things are beginning to to it, it, it's a different atmosphere. And they begin to grow up and, and lose that cult. But it was very prevalent during the revolution. And I quote in my book on Napoleon this extraordinary passage by um, Germain de Stael, the Baroness de Stael, who mm-hmm. um, writes this about, at length about this idea of gloire, which is not not translatable in by the modern sense of glory. It was a question of of self-fulfillment. It was it was actually exactly the same as a sort of Catholic teaching on a, achieving sainthood and and um and immortality right. and, and and being saved in, in 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 the next life. So they were he 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 wasn't an oddball. He was very much uh, a man of his times. Um and you know his reading uh, these people were all brought, brought up on not so much on the rationalism of Voltaire and people, but on the um, sentimental emotionalism of Rousseau and, you know, on La Nouvelle Louise, on books like Paul et Virginie, which he read and reread endlessly. And, you yeah, know, and chuck in a bit of Ossian as well. And yes, and, and, you know, The Sorrows of Young Werther, you know, which you, you, <laughs> favorite, major influence. Um, mm. and, and Ossian, for God's sake, you know, he absolutely adored Ossian. He thought it was far better than Homer. Um, <laughs> and and said so frequently. Uh, these people thought they were uh, sort of they, they were sort of levitating, particularly at the beginning of their lives. And of course, he loved the French, um, the French. So the final the final question, I think, to, to to round this off, is I think what you're saying is we're certainly putting Napoleon or the the, the myth of Napoleon in in the context of him being. A man, a human being who who picks noses, but also reads very noble-minded things. And so, I think the final question to ask is whether these days it's possible to be—is it a case of being for him or against him? I think you're trying to attempt 
to resist that straitjacket, which I think sometimes afflicts, I don't know, the, the whole way that the period is talked about. I, I just don't think one should be for, or as a historian, one shouldn't be for or against um, anybody. Uh, what one should always try and do is to simply try and understand and explain. You know, if I were commissioned to write a biography of Hitler or Stalin, um, which I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't do, but uh, were I to do so, I would sit down and go back to the childhood and go back to that and try and explain in human terms um, what they thought they were doing at any given time rather than pass judgment. Now, having written the book and, 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 and discoursed on, on the subject, um, one can have sympathies um, and empathies. And I think that one should always empathize, even if, you know, if, if, if I think one has to empathize with one subject, even if it, it happens to be Hitler or Stalin. Um, because otherwise you can't begin to... In, I, understand them. You have to sort of put yourself in their place. However monstrous they may be. Yeah, but the most important thing about Napoleon is to get rid of these assumptions which are held particularly by um, um, by Anglo-Saxon um, uh, readers, which are that he was bloodthirsty. He was no more bloodthirsty than any, any of his contemporaries. He wasn't responsible for as many deaths as the, the uh, revolutionary wars, in fact, probably a great deal fewer. Um, the others, um, Alexander I was responsible for a huge amount of deaths um, by endlessly waging wars which were of no use to Russia at all um, mm -hmm. and by allowing his country to be ravaged. Um, the Austrian armies caused more and then there was a survey done after the Napoleonic Wars, and it said that more ravages were caused on in Habsburg lands by Austrian troops than French troops, um, and so oh, on right. and so forth. And by the way, you know, Wellington's um, behavior in, in his army's behavior in the peninsula was not particularly um, kid-gloved, uh, and their treatment of prisoners was appalling. Uh, so, you know... It, it, One's got to get rid of that, the bloodthirsty ogre, um, and then go back to his times. It, there was a huge struggle for world dominance going on between Britain, France, Russia, the German lands. Uh, and, you know, it was a question of winner takes all. You didn't sit around being nice to each other. Adam Zamoyski then, so grateful to him for his time last year and um, it's been brilliant. I've been saving this interview up, um, but I think uh, you'll have uh, enjoyed it as much as I have. I certainly hope so anyway. Now, that really is it for um, now, at least. The Napoleonic Quarterly is going to take a break. For how long is not so clear. Hopefully it'll just be a couple of months or so. I mean, maybe. I've recorded 10 of the 24 segments for season three. That's how I sort of break it down. You know, it's eight, eight episodes, three interview segments per episode. So 10 of those are done. I 
got to get cracking with the rest. And then, of course, once they're done, it's over to Charles and Alex um, to try and um, figure out how to put all that together. But perhaps, maybe, December 2021 might be possible, or, or maybe January 22, we'll see. But in any case, in the meantime, I hope you um, have really enjoyed listening. I've certainly enjoyed this second series just as much as the first. And of course, things are going to get very interesting in season three. We've kind of been skirting around the fact that Napoleon Bonaparte is, after all, the uh, the, the person who this podcast is inevitably named after. But he's really going to come to the fore in 1796. And uh, I've already recorded those interviews. They were um, They were literally very different to the others. I mean, in terms of the pacing of just what happens in 1796 with Bonaparte, it is extraordinary that you know and and really it's compared to what we've talked about before so I've got used to handling a certain amount of events and action that that takes place in a three-month period well things pick up in 1796 and I definitely finished those uh, interview segments it's with Rick Schneid who who I did those with he was brilliant um you sort of um, emerge from it feeling slightly dizzy. So this, this pace is going to pick up. It's going to be fantastic. And that's what's really going to drive me on, I think, as I start putting together these episodes. So bear with me. In the meantime, please do let me know how marvellous you think the podcast is on Twitter and on Facebook. And I tell you what, if you could uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I think that's a, a generally thought to be a good thing to do. So please do that. In the meantime, though, I really ought to go away and start working out who I need to contact for season three. So bear with me on that. And uh, goodbye for now. <laughs>